Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel is going to lead us in a scripture reading and a prayer on this book club edition of the program. I thought it began with Exodus 17, 8 through 12. At Rephidim, Amalek came and waged war against Israel. Moses, therefore, said to Joshua, Pick out certain men and tomorrow go out and engage Amalek in battle. I will be standing on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him. He engaged Amalek in battle after Moses had climbed to the top of the hill with Aaron and Hur. As long as Moses kept his hands raised up, Israel had the better of the fight. But when he let his hands rest, Amalek had the better of the fight. Moses' hands, however, grew tired, so they put a rock in place for him to sit on. Meanwhile, Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Gracious God, we ask your blessing upon this day as we discuss this book and just look at the history of uh, your, whole, your holy people, um, looking at the sometimes misperceptions, uh, just sometimes the way in which the faith has worked in the world, especially in the, the specifics of the Crusades. Ask your blessings upon all of us in terms of the way which we can live out and defend our faith in the world and bless the time we spend today and bless the listeners who are here and opening their hearts and ears to our words. We ask this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Father Nagel. All right, I'm, I'm excited to dive into this book, God's Battalions by Rodney Stark. Again, it, the focus is on the Crusades, and mm. the subtitle is The Case for the Crusades, which all by itself is kind of striking to me. Um, got a lot to say about the book. And so we're going to do this in two parts, folks. And uh, I, I'm going to just, I'm going to be presumptuous here and say that I think all three of us are going to recommend that this is a book that we encourage you to get. But uh, maybe I'm speaking too much. Uh, maybe I'm saying too much. Again, I'm a little bit uh, almost giddy because of this book, uh, how much I enjoyed it. Um, but let me start with Father Lewis. Father Lewis, your overall impressions. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start with our historian, yeah. the in-house historian and, and, um, I'm so excited. I, I don't, you know, let's start with first impressions, and then overall, what is the book about? So, Father Nagel, what is the book overall about? And then your impressions on it, and then we'll follow behind you. The book, some background. Rodney Stark actually is not Catholic. He is, uh, I think, evangelical Protestant or Baptist. Some, um, and he, he used to teach at Baylor, and he was teaching at Baylor Baptist University when he wrote this book. I think he's since moved on someplace else. But he is a great historian um, of the early church, and in this case, going up into the Middle Ages. But it's important to recognize, so this is not a Catholic uh, presentation. Although, and you can see that, there's a, there's a chapter when he deals with the church and the corruption of the church and stuff that um, there's, a, there's a bit of a Protestant take on that. But he's really, I think there's two things happening in this book. The first is he's addressing a common attack upon Catholicism in particular, but probably Christianity in general, in terms of, you know, what about the, um, you know, sort of about what about questions? What about the Inquisition? What about the Crusades? You guys say you're really holy, but what about these things? And there's a mythology that develops around the Crusades and these other dark moments, Galileo, you you name it. Uh, There there are some things there. And usually there's there's elements of truth, certainly, to these things, sort of the the church, uh, well, Catholics in particular, might have um, and did do things that would become sinful, et cetera. Yet there's also a false presentation of um, what happened. And again, the mythology grows up, and Rodney Stark first wants to, he's he's putting this whole thing in context. So he's saying the Crusades happened at a certain time, a certain place, with certain expectations, with certain history, and you have to get that right if you're going to try to evaluate or, again, somehow judge what happened during these events in the Middle Ages. So some of it, there's apologetics element to this, where he's saying, you know, actually, here's how the Catholic Church can address what's these past um, periods of history. And let's make sure, okay, what went right and what what went wrong, but also what's been misperceived in the past. And so let's let's see what really happened as opposed to what people think happened. And then the second element is it's a short history summation of the Crusades. And 
And he's talking about what we would call, I would call the kind of the classic crusades, not, not these things that went off and got called crusades in terms of whether it's against heretics in France or um, pagan peoples up in Balt the Baltic countries, etc. But the attempts to go and camp, uh, capture or occupy uh, Jerusalem of the Holy Land. So there's six crusades he carries um, carries on here in his book. They're short. It's not it's not in depth history, but it's very interesting history. And I think it's it's um, it's a great introduction, I would say, to those events. So I think those are the two major uh, things going on. I thought it was a good book. I, I do think it, uh, I learned some things certainly in terms of uh, the individual crusades. And, and also even some context, especially in terms of the Byzantine Empire and this Greek East Christian Empire and how it interacts. Because the, the apologetics is not simply against, you know, again, it could be other Christians, but more likely it's against non-Christians. It could be atheists who are attacking the church because of the Crusades. But there's also this history of, of uh, the Muslim-Christian uh, relationship and and how the Crusades have been and have not been used in the past in terms of our own fraught interactions and even there's something there, there's an element here also of, of, of Eastern Orthodox Catholic uh, history and and I think this book again not from a Catholic but from a Protestant Christian does a good job of saying okay um, let's let's take a deep breath and say well, what really happened back then. And, and as opposed to what the, the claims or the accusations are. So I think you did a good job of clear, making a clear presentation of that. It's not original research. He's, he's synthesizing other people's work. So he's not himself a, a historian of the Crusades. I don't think he would claim to be. But he does have the reputable, reputable sources. Uh, and he just So he's taking the secondary uh, sources and he's uh, synthesizing those. That would be my maybe not too brief um, summation. No, and but excellent. Thank you, but Lewis. Well, my my impressions is, um, I guess when I first launched into this book, I thought it would be kind of more on the apologetic side. Um, it ends up just because of the subtitle, "The Case for the Crusades," and um, and um, and therefore I kind of expected a different kind of text. It, it's more of a history, but more like a narrative history, like like uh, Father Nagel said, he's. He's summarizing what the crusader, crusade historians themselves have said in detail, and he's using them as, as a foundation for him to create his own historical narrative. So, in in so many respects, it reads like like a story, but I mean, it's a it's a history. And then uh, with um, with apologetics strewn throughout. So, if anyone's hoping that this would be a useful tool for apologetics, um, you got to read it first to appreciate the narrative, and then you'll glean the. The apologetics points uh, out of that. He he doesn't stop and say, okay, and here are the apologetics takeaways. It's not it's not organized like that. And so that uh, I kind of thought it would have an element to that, and it didn't. But that didn't disappoint me. It's just an observation that I made. But then the context, like Father Nagel said, the the introduction, the first chapter, or before we even get into the Crusades themselves, because it's important to look at what was the situation in that part of the world, and um, socially and economically and and politically and so on. That gave rise to the Crusades in the first place. So we, I thought it was a good, good, um, a good kind of what they might call in, in fiction, you know, world building. He's he's building the world to kind of give us the setting accurately, and then and then we see, you know, not just that the Crusades happened, but a really strong sense of why. So that's part of the context. Um, and so um, uh, that was a, that was an impression that I had, and and just very clear, accessible history. I think a lot of a lot of history uh, writers, um, if if they're not if they're historians and they're great historians, but maybe not great writers, it can be dry, and it's a lot of the facts and figures you can get buried alive underneath. Or apologetics, where it's like the black and the white. We're just going to create this list. Here's they, what they say. Here's how you respond. It's it's not that either. So it's I think it's very engaging, and um, and in, it was an inviting therefore to want to keep reading, like like a good novel would do. Uh, so this good historical narrative did, uh, at least for me. I just found it uh, engaging in its layout and um, and um, in presentation. So I, uh, Carrie was saying to me this uh, this morning before we're, we're pre-recording. She's like, um, "So what do you think about the book?" And I said, oh, "I love it." She says, "Oh yeah, I think I'll get it and, and you know read it for Lent." And I'm like, "No, no, <laughs> that's not that kind of book." And I and the reason I love it is that it reminded me of being uh, being in school, uh, you know, doing my studies in theology, uh, it it is a scientist. This is a scientific approach 
to the Crusades. Uh, and when you think about historians, you don't often think of historians as scientists. Sorry, Father Nagel. Um, by that, I mean the sense of objectivity. Like there, there's, there's an objective approach here, and there's an attempt to take a look at the evidence and weigh it and measure it. Um, like there's a hypothesis going on here in this author. Let's test that against the evidence that we can get in the manuscripts. And what I really enjoyed about this book is that he was able to take a look at some of the dominant uh, theories that were that have carried the day at different moments, but especially in the last couple of centuries since the Enlightenment and then uh, in, in, in atheists and in, in their approach to this, like Voltaire, he mentions more than once. Uh, the and then the the Protestant approaches to interpreting these things, and and at several times I was left with, how did these uh, authors who put these anti-Catholic spin on things get away with it? Mm. Just making stuff up whole cloth, or seemingly interpreting um, a particular event um, with very little basis, and so the fact that he had the ability to stand apart from what were dominant thrusts in the literature, which he could have easily just said, oh, well, scholars all agree, or academicians all agree, or the history of interpretations of this all agree. And he could have easily just stayed with that. But again and again and again in the book, he's like, um, let me throw a flag on the field. Let me take an honest look at the evidence that we have available to us today and we have to acknowledge that's not right that's overstated do you see what's happening here there was a there was a literary um uh, approach being a rhetorical approach being used in this author and in this instance and you can see that there's a prejudice at work here and we need to sweep that away and take an honest look at things i found that wonderfully refreshing yeah and, and, and frankly, folks, it's, it's, it's a little bit academic. It, it, it's like a scholar's approach to this particular um, stream of history, uh, you know, the stream of what was going on with the Crusades. And I found it very rich. I found it incredibly rich, especially in terms of the background, right? So the background in terms of um, what happened with the rise of Islam and the way in which Islam spread and in particularly the fragmentation mm -hmm. of Islamic peoples once they conquered certain areas, and then the way in which he like unfolded, um, and we're only talking about up to the first crusade, right? In in the the retaking of Jerusalem, the way that he like draws out the the various like the three parts of the of the groups that the three crusades that make up the the three streams of the first crusade, and then in within them. The three streams of the second crusade, the second portion of it, and the six parts of the prince's crusade, and all of that. Um, I just I found that so um, like wonderfully helpful, and at the same time, he doesn't make it dry. He's able to draw on stories that are uh, that add not just color but uh, put meat on the bones, if you will, um, regarding the various crusades. Um, so on the one hand. Uh, I did not find him having a motive. Like he, he really wasn't attempting to say, let me defend the Catholic Church here. In fact, I want to end my little comments with what um, it said uh, on Wikipedia about Rodney Stark and his personal faith. Okay, so this is a very interesting thing. Um, yeah, in his 1987 book, A Theory of Religion, Stark describes himself as personally incapable of religious faith. While reluctant to discuss his own religious views, he stated in a 2004 interview that he was not a man of faith, but also not an atheist. In a 2007 interview, after accepting an appointment at Baylor University, which is a very devout Christian school, Stark indicated that his self-understanding had changed, and now he could be described as an independent Christian. In this interview, Stark recollects that he was he has always been a cultural Christian, understood by him as having been strongly committed to Western civilization. Of his previous positions, he wrote, I was never an atheist, 
but I probably could have been best described as an agnostic. I just find that so striking. Yeah. That, you know, I, I, I came in thinking that he was probably a man of deep, committed Christian yeah. faith, but also an honest academic. Yeah, um, me But too. this is very different. This is a much more minimal, like he's really a sociologist who wants to apply rigor to the historical uh, study of a topic. Father Nagel. It, that, that's interesting because I did not know that that side of his story at all. Um, and I think he's been presented by other people, perhaps also ignorant of that as as this Christian author. Maybe it's because of the school he taught at. So that, that is interesting to me. I do think what you're t- talking about, just in terms of historiography, every, you know, it, you're talking about objectivity, but it... And you think they have history not as a science, although I have to say, during my time in graduate school, there was this desire to be seen as a social scientist as opposed to a humanities person. There, there was a tension within the profession uh, in terms of that. Do you see yourself as a scientist of some kind, some kind or as a writer, thinker, uh, philosopher sort of person? I do think that, like though a scientist, a scientific method, Science scientists have all sorts of biases. Uh, just look at the arguments over vaccines and COVID and all these sorts of things. That, but the method is supposed to be that the scientific method will weed out that if it's left to run correctly. That people's biases will be overturned by the, the experiments, and because you know, physical world is going to act the way the physical world does, and if we measure it right, we'll get the right answer. Similarly, historiography should be, we, we come with biases. Um, we, we do, we have our own experience. We, we have our presuppositions. You try to, again, uh, counter those in terms of being uh, objective to the best of your ability. But it really helps when you have different historians coming from different perspectives to be able to look at the evidence and say, well, wait a minute, you're making assumptions here based on your own personal or cultural background here. It's coloring the way you look at all these things. And I do think whether it's the Enlightenment or whether it's the Protestant Reformation or whether it's atheistic uh, societies in parts of the world today, that you're going to look at the Crusades and the church in certain ways and assume, sometimes with bad intent, but sometimes not. Um, but just It's just your own bias. Again, Catholic authors or historians who have dealt with the Crusades in the past have, their, have had their own biases sometimes, counteracting it too far. So I, I think Rodney Stark plays a good role here in just saying, okay, this is going to be a pretty pretty objective checking of these assumptions that we've been working on and show and say, is there really evidence for this or is this something coming out of um, preconceived notions and sometimes agendas? So just a quick comment on that. Uh, you may have read, Father Lewis, you might remember this one from the seminary as you, Father Nagel, uh, Truth and Method by Hans-Georg Gadamer. Did you ever read that? I did um, not. I don't think I did. Okay, so uh, if you study systematic theology and hermeneutics, you have to read Truth and Method by Hans-Georg Gadamer. He's a German philosopher, uh, a Protestant, but um, he basi- in his book Truth and Method, he basically says, I'm going to summarize a very complicated text that uh, in some ways addresses exactly what you said, that hermeneutics must be rooted in ontology, that if you're going to have a theory of interpretation, you have to connect it to being, to reality. And a lot of methods of hermeneutics, a lot of methods of interpreting things don't take proper account of the fact that there is something called reality. And so um, I think in some ways that's what you're saying, Father Nagel, uh-huh. that, yes. um, that and, and one of his key points is that we come to any text, and and, and reality is is the world around us is a text, anything around us in a way that says, of course I'm going to have a lens, of course I'm going to have a means of interpreting this that I must be aware of. So he focuses quite a bit on the concept of having a self-awareness of the prejudices that I bring. And prejudice here doesn't have a negative connotation. It's that which I bring to the moment of interpretation. And so if we don't have an understanding of that, then we might be blinded by our own prejudices when we come and look at, for instance, this place in history. So we're naturally going to be drawn towards more sympathetic readings of things that fit our own approach. Yeah. Okay, there we go. All right, this is why I like the book so much. <laughs> Father Lewis is looking at me and his eyes were glazing over and he's like, oh Lord, are we back in metaphysics again? I just want to talk about Jesus and help people overcome 
uh, claims against the Catholic faith when it comes to the Crusades. So, so folks, God's Battalion is what we're talking about today, the case for the Crusades. We're up against our first break. We've actually gone a little bit long. What a surprise. In our talking about the book, we haven't even gotten into the book yet. That's what happens, Father Lewis, when you have two PhDs in the room trying to talk about an academic text. All right, back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran, and I'm together with Father Jeff Lewis and Father Kurt Nagel, and we're talking about the book God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades by Rodney Stark. And today I, I said we were going uh, to do this in two parts, and in part one we're going to, well, now I'm going to say attempt to cover. I've already given up on saying that we're going to cover the first seven chapters. I, I thought I was being humble when I sent you guys, fathers the email saying, okay, look, let's just try to cover the, up to the first crusade. <laughs> I think I now I've overshot the target. <laughs> okay, so uh, Father Nagel, you brought up a, 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 a wonderful way of simply defining like what the text is attempting to do. The first part is really about context, and then we start talking about the historical unfolding of things. Um, let's let's take a look at it like that. Let's take a look at actually, yeah, we could take a look at it like that. But along the way, I also want to give you the opportunity if there is a particular. Um, uh, anecdote in here or theme in here that you'd like to highlight, we can go right to that text as well, just to give folks a sense of diving into the text to help them understand why this text is very valuable to read, even though it's not going to be a typical book like we typically recommend. Are you asking for those? I am. I'm saying, Father Nagel, okay, you can dive in. You can hit a theme if you want, here. or you can talk a little bit about the, this uh, opening sense of context. I am going to talk about, there's a text I'm going to end with, but I want to put it in, I think with a huge theme here, something that Stark does want to get across, is that the Crusades are a counterattack. They're counterpunching against, they're, they're fighting back from something that's already happening to them. And I think that we recognize, need to recognize that, okay, Jerusalem and the First Crusade was, was conquered in 1099. And so you're talking about what some people have called the Dark Ages, where the Western civilization is, has, has been under attack from all sides. Uh, it's, it's, whether it's the um, uh, Islamic uh, forces coming up from Spain or across from North Africa into Southern Italy, it's the barbarians and Vikings from the East, et cetera. But for centuries, it's, it's been a really tough situation to be in Western Europe and have Western civilization. Here's the, the, the first crusades I think can be seen in some ways as the first time that Christendom in that sense, that Western society counterattacks. Now by, it, it's grown strong enough that it can take the initiative, not simply reacting and defending against other invaders, but now it's going to say, okay, now we're going to react and we're going to come back at it. We're going to initiate a, a movement that now we're going to be on the offensive, but not because we're necessarily, although, again, you're always dealing here with pretty violent, uh, brutal men of all races and all societies. Um, but here's, here, uh, there on, chap on page 8, there's a nice little summation here. Um, it's, he says in, this, in the first paragraph at the top there, to sum up the prevailing wisdom, Quote, During the Crusades, an expansionist imperialistic Christendom brutalized, looted, and colonized a tolerant and peaceful Islam. Where he says, not so. As will be seen, the Crusades were precip precipitated by Islamic provocations, by centuries of bloody attempts to colonize the West, and by sudden new attacks on Christian pilgrims and holy places. Although the Crusades were initiated by a plea from the Pope, this had nothing to do with hopes of converting Islam. Nor were the Crusades organized and led by surplus sons, but by the heads of great families who were fully aware that the cost of crusading would far exceed the very modest material rewards that would be expected. Most went at immense personal costs, some of them knowing, knowingly bankrupting themselves to go. Moreover, the crusader kingdoms that they established in the Holy Land and that stood for nearly two centuries were not colonies sustained by local extraction. Rather, they required immense subsidies from Europe, etc., I just think that theme of counterattack is important. It says, hey, we've been being beaten up for centuries, and now we're strong enough to fight back. I was looking at those same pages that in terms of um, the context, the context not just of the historical setting, the what and the where and the when, those factual things, but but the why. And I, I looked at that exact same um, uh, pages to sum up the prevailing wisdom, and then they 
they state, you know, he's stating in in his own words, but the prevailing wisdom that that all these points are are really um, uh, they're they're flat out wrong, or they're just um, they're just incomplete, and then laying out a, a, a quick response, and and he couches that in the introductory paragraph at the end of the introduction, because um, and and I appreciate that as the reader receiving this because that helps set the tone for what I'm about to encounter in the rest of the book. I needed to know what. If he's going to use this as an historical narrative, but also as an apologetic tool, then in that in those two pages, he's laying out here's what here's what uh, the one side is saying, and and I'm trying I'm trying to use this as a tool to get the record straight, or at least to expand upon the prevailing wisdom, quote unquote. So he's laying down the terms, and 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 these are these are the individual pieces of the prevailing wisdom that he'll uh, have a response to. Uh, one after another as the book unfolds. So that's those were pretty two pretty important pages for me, pages eight and nine, the introduction. And for that reason, it helps establish the context of what I'm about to encounter in the rest of the text. Yeah, and uh, what I what I really liked about this was that he just in terms of how he wrote the book, he had like short paragraphs at the beginning and concluding like paragraphs or maybe a longer section sometimes that was a conclusion. Super helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Nice little summary. So I found that I found that to be helpful. And again, just to say, uh, I like the chapter uh, that marked uh, the introductory section that you identified, um, Father Nagel. Um, and I want to add to that what he says on the next page um, when he says, however, unlike most con- uh, conventional crusade historians, I shall not begin with the Pope's appeal at Clermont, but with the rise of Islam and the onset of Muslim invasions of Christendom. That's when it all started in the seventh century. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like that was new to me. Yeah, that was the, the the way that he contextualizes things was really fresh and new. And then he goes on in the first chapter to talk about what happened uh, in these conquests of uh, of Muslim. He calls it Muslim invaders, which is his first chapter. And I just found this so interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd heard and done some reading about the militaristic. Uh, uh, approaches and and theology and theological bases of Islam, you know, going back to Muhammad himself, but to see the way that um, he then maps it out, um, you know, first in 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 the Middle East and then down into Egypt and then across North Africa and then up into Spain and then across to Italy and then he circles back and talks about the attempts to go north uh, into, well, first Syria, I guess, right? And then, uh, beyond that up into, to Turkey, Asia minor. I just found so interesting, uh, the, the stories in here. And and I talk about that, like things that were surprising to me. Um, one of the things that was surprising to me was the theme that shows up a number of times in the book of the importance that one individual can play in actually turning in the entirety of history can can be traced back to the actions and decisions of a single person and they probably have no idea in the moment that that they're having that kind of impact uh, and i could point to i don't know six or seven of them in just these first 160 pages but was that something that that stood out to either of you fathers it did to me um uh, there's more I could say about that in the, this our second review of the book, um, particularly about King Saint Louis. Um, uh, and, but uh, but yeah, that that struck me, and and not just individuals in the turn of history. We would think, oh, those individuals, they're the this prince or this count or this duke, uh, but anonymous figures. The guy who opened the door inexplicably, a Muslim in who Alexandria. opened the door in Alexandria, the Muslim yeah. who opened the door at the betrayal of his own people. That, and what happened? Do you what, remember the story? Go ahead. Well. It, uh, in Alexandria, um, I don't. Well, they he opened the door, so they came in. Um, you know, this is the short version. But well, Alexandria, right? Well, I should let Father Nagel no, sail it. Go ahead. Just well, Alexandria at this point was this amazing city that had mm. immense protection, and there was no way that the yeah. Muslims would be able to overcome right. the 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 Byzantines who were there um, holding the city. Right. Yeah. So there was just no way they were going to win. Right. Um, and the only way they won was that some unnamed soldier opened the door and let them in at night to be able to come in and be able to strategically uh, and militaristically be able to win the victory. Yeah. And here's this guy who you know is not known to history, yeah. and and yet he did that. And it's just like wow, <laughs> this guy you know we not known to history, but 
what he did impacted the rest of history. Mm-hmm. Well, and how much, uh, not just the individuals, but things beyond the control you know, of the people involved. And that's another comment I was, uh, you know, expand upon with King St. Louis. He, he emphasizes the, the Rodney Stark, that the best planned crusader, the most um, careful planner with everything meticulously planned and executed was King St. Louis. And what a remarkable failure his efforts were so much because of it was too hot that day. So they got dehydrated, you know, things like that, or the, it was the flood season. And so they got stuck in the quagmire. You know, things like that. You know, the best laid plans of mice and men is kind of the summary of that. And uh, and how how frequently that played a role in changing history, too. Yeah. I think that the sort of the um, idea of these individuals who have an impact, again, from a historiographical position, it's, it's again, a classical uh, argument among historians. Is it individual great figures or is it uh, these... Um, anonymous sweeping movements of history and this is a good book where you can argue both ways you know you can it's a both and not either or we have individuals but you also have these sweeping movements and new religions pop up you know come forward people the turks come in um migrate into asia minor i mean there's all sorts of huge uh sociological movements that also have this impact but it's it's good and that's that's where it's going you know modern historiography tends to downplay the individual and sort of the quote-unquote great man theory of history but there's always these counter arguments too that as you just said one person's actions does have this huge impact and um so i think it's it's an interesting point this would be a good if I was doing a history seminar, a historiography seminar, this might be a good book to say, okay, wh- which is it? How do, is, is it? The, is it the big anonymous sweeping movements or is it economic, you know, there's economic and cultural factors or is it individuals and their actions? That's actually another, he brings that up later in the book <clears throat> um, where he talks about the fact that um, the church, like when do movements, how do movements happen? And he talks about the fact that um, something like the Crusades only worked because, not because of this so much the preaching of individuals, even the Pope, as good as that was, but because of this network mm-hmm. of families. Mm-hmm. Right? He, he, and I really, again, found that so interesting and fascinating that they trace back the majority of those who went on the Crusades that were in leadership or the most prominent figures were all this like network of families yeah. together. And I was like marking all that up. I'm thinking, there's insight here. Well, there's just, something. Go ahead, Father. Let's let's take an, a, a current example. Uh, in Washington State, um, there's been a movement of families from Seattle to Spokane. Um, most of them know each. They have connections. Um, they have. They talk. They build. They build connections, and they reestablish them somewhere else. But it's a, it's a group. It's not just, I think I'm just going to go do that. It's people talking to other people. It's kind of getting together. Um, I, again, that's a small local current situation. But I think it's the way it worked in Europe as well, saying, yeah, you know, it's, it's relatives, it's friends. Let's do this together. Um, this is something that's really moving me. Let's do it. And so you sort of help each other and urge each other on and push each other on. I think that's what's happening here too. You know, uh, great insight. In fact, that's what I think got me like, oh, wow, that's that's really true. It's on page 110. Um, and he's re- he is summarizing and then ex- explicating upon the insights of this researcher who was looking at the numbers. He was tracing back, like looking at the data. I think it was around like families and wills and registers and, and who had to sell what, like financial arrangements. And then, and so his name is Riley Smith, uh, is, is the last name of this researcher. Jonathan Riley Smith. Jonathan. So Jonathan Riley Smith's most important insight was thrust upon him by the data. Crusading was dominated by a few closely related families. It appears that this is not so much that individuals decided to accept the Pope's summons, but the uh, families did so. Uh, and then a little bit further down, people become active in social movements in response to the fact that many of their friends, relatives, or other close associates already have done so. Put another way. Collective social activities are not the summation of a number of independent choices made by individuals. Rather, they're the product of social networks. So, for example, reconstruction of the initial set of converts to new religions from Buddhism to Mormonism shows that those religions to have begun as family affairs, and so it is with crusading. 
And then uh, at the end of that section, he says, in addition to the fact that networks form the basis for joining social movements, there was a second reason that families were so prominent in generating crusaders. Families were inevitably deeply involved in the ability of a knight to go crusading. Substantial sums had to be raised to fund their venture, etc. So uh, when I, I, it got me thinking about that. And so Father says, here we are, right? We're attempting to fulfill God's call for our time in this moment. And it did make me think about okay, who actually moves? You know, a movement requires people to move. And I think that I've put maybe too much emphasis in my mind that the Holy Spirit is going to fall upon people in power and then they're going to change and then they're going to move. When in fact, it probably has a lot more to do with this human reality that he's identified as a social scientist, not as a saint or theologian, but as a social scientist. No, people move because of relationships. People move because of sense of connection. Then the deeper the connection, the more movable they are uh, when it comes to taking significant action, like what was involved sacrificially, hugely, in undertaking a crusade. That brings me to another point I would want to make, though. And this is a, another point uh, Stark says is contrary to the perceived, assumed truth. And that is, what's the motivation of these crusaders and you mentioned the, the family type etc how expensive it is and that not there's a tendency to discount faith and devotion and then look instead at sort of economic factors so again it's sort of the, the greedy material world things so, so these people are just kind of hypocrites because they say they're taking the cross but really what they're wanting to do is get some extra land or or, or treasure from the east or things like this and he does a good job of saying, well, if, if that's the case, they were really stupid because there's no way that's ever worked out. Because, again, you could go bankrupt going to the East. And so I think it's, it's it, it simplifies human nature to say there's one motive, you know. Um, and I would, would want to always say to everybody listening in, the Crusaders, again, you're talking about 12th century, 10, 11th, 12th, 13th century knights, warriors. They're, they are bloody. They are savage in all sorts of ways. Um, this is not a clean movement at all in that sort of sense. Uh, they're not saints, but they are in their own kind of crude way devout Catholics. And that has a powerful way to motivate and to leverage and to move them. And so it's, it's not either or, but don't discount that if you they had to have meant it at some level that this was the, the spiritual part or they wouldn't have taken on this huge task. So I, I always want to put that in. Um, yeah, they're greedy, violent sinners, but they're also, and like you and me, they can be devout Catholics at the same time. Father, that, you, you, Father Lewis, is, he's got his book open. He's ready to respond. But we're up against a break, Father. Okay, so Father Lewis will have a chance to dive back in. Uh, and I'm on page 117. He has that conclusion where he talks about the two motives. But I'll let you read your section, Father Lewis. And I'm ready to jump in, too. This is, see, this is what's so exciting about reading God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades. There's so much rich fodder for discussion here. But we'll continue that in a minute. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis, Father Kurt Nagel. We are talking about God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades by Rodney Stark. It's published by Harper One. You can get it. Uh, you can get it at you know online, lots of places. But if you can, support your lo good local Catholic bookstore and have them order the book for you. Um, by the way, uh, Rodney Stark has another book that is just about um, uh, Catholicism and anti-Catholicism. I ordered it. Hmm. It's called um, Bearing False Witness. Yeah, and this is again from, this is a summary from Wikipedia. While not a Roman Catholic himself, Stark believed that anti-Catholicism is still a dominant force in the American media and academia. Particularly in his book, Bearing False Witness, he argued that an anti-Catholic prejudice has poisoned the historical debate on the Crusades, the Inquisition, and the relations of Pope Pius XII with Nazism, creating an anti-Catholic history that is at odds with contemporary academic research yet is still taught in schools and promoted by mainline media. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. so, um, so he has a shorter section in that book on the Crusades, but covers a number of other issues. They, they mentioned three here. So I ordered the book, Bearing False Witness. I'll give you guys an update on uh, Fathers. I'll give you an update on what comes of that book. But anyways, Father Lewis, where we left off, Father Nagel um, was talking about the way in which uh, those that went on the Crusades 
must have had some religious motive, but it was it was um it wasn't just the you know the let's go slaughter and and get the rewards that we can get by doing this, but there must have been uh there, there was a more complex picture here, and you're ready to jump in, Father Lewis. Well, one, the first thing I was going to say is that's an aspect of of uh, Stark's writing of this narrative that I really appreciated. One of his criticisms of some of these other historians that he's responding to is uh, the um, the overly abundant demonization of the Christian side of the of the uh, of the uh, history here, and um, too much of a sanitiz- you know sanitization of the Muslims. Just that quote we mentioned earlier during the Crusades. In an expansionist, imperialistic Christendom, brutalized, looted, and colonized. That makes Christianity look awful. The tolerant and peaceful Islam. That sanitizes them. He does a good job of of responding to that, but not in a way that just gives a free pass to the Christian side. Uh, one of the characters that we come across are the um, uh, Peter the Hermit, I think, in his in his um, what his what what his crusaders called. I think just the peasants crusade, uh, crusaders. And um, and branches of them broke off, and they were brutalizing Jews along the way, and Hungarians as soon as they crossed into Budapest, and so on. So he doesn't he doesn't shy away from that ugliness on the Christian side of thing, but he again he puts it in the larger context. This just is the complexity of of the whole thing. You can't really just say that's white and that's black. And this is all there is to it. And um, you know, uh, later in the book we get into the um, Muslim character Saladin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And um, I remember about 10 years ago, there was a movie called Kingdom of Heaven, mm-hmm. which is about, I think, the Third Crusade. It was uh, visually appealing, but other than that, it was I thought it was just garbage. <laughs> um, and I didn't even know much about the Crusades then, but it was like, this is another example of trying to demonize the Christian side of the, of the histor- history and canonize um, you know, the Muslim side. And as usual, the truth is somewhere in between. And Saladin was a character in that film, and that was exactly how they portrayed him, was this, you know, this peaceful, you know, hero that uh, can do no wrong. Uh, so that was one thing I was going to respond in addition to what uh, Father Nagel had said. And but going back to the motives be, behind these characters, you know, the family motives, the heads of the families. You know, he quotes several times. I wish I marked where they were, but you know, the head of this family, who's at his own expense leading the crusade, he has actually stated, and we have this in the letter, and says, "I go to defend where Christ Himself had trod." You know, things like this. The devotion is profound, and um, and and they'll talk about how to help fund it. They're selling off huge tracts of land that were their their family's heritage for who knows whole centuries. towns, whole towns, counties, can- mortgaging towns? them. Yeah, mortgaging <laughs> them, and um, and so so that he could take the cash and then fund the war. Now you know that that uh, that flies in the face of these claims that well the kings and the dukes and the princes they would wait at home and send their their rabble to go do it, and no wonder they were disorganized and brutal because they had no one to lead them. Well, that's patently false, as we find in, in this text and the research that undergirds it. So that was another response was uh, that I had to, in addition to, to what you guys have just shared. Yeah, so uh, there's the People's Crusade. That's Peter the Hermit. Yeah. And then you have the German Crusade, uh, which is... Um, and then you have the Prince's Crusade. That's right. And it's the German Crusade that uh, slaughters the Jews. Okay. More than uh, Peter than than the People's Crusades, um, but even that, just he goes into the details and, and he talks about the Prince's Crusades and all that they gave up in. Uh, let's see what chapter is it? It's a, beginning on page one twenty seven. He gets into all of those, the four different uh, streams that that come from different areas, and even that I just found so interesting. Like, when did they leave? Right? Like Peter the Hermit was so effective, they got ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. Right, and they were out front. <laughs> like, slow it down, man. Yeah. You know, <laughs> wait for everybody. Why don't we kind of go together? I, I didn't realize that there was about a year separating Peter the Hermit and his leaving, and then the, the arrival of the the last prince mm-hmm. uh, coming from was it Normandy? Uh, Robert Duke of Normandy was the last one to leave, and I'm like, man, I, I didn't realize that it took them that long to all gather uh, in Byzantium. Um, to anyways, uh, but I want to come back to a theme that jumped out at me, and that was that uh, we. And this, again, this is a simple point that Rodney Stark makes, but it's important, and it's not just that we um, accept the prejudicial um, interpretations that have come to us 
um, in certain in, in in retellings of the story of the Crusades, but rather we also must be aware of our own prejudice regarding the nature of warfare and what the expectations were of the conquerors. And so you see certain things happen here that are foreign to our way of thinking. So just a couple, for instance, is the first was knights were raised to go to war. Knights were raised to go fight. And so that whole process of becoming a knight, frankly, it's, it's actually something that you see quite a bit of in um, modern day men's movements. Like look to the, um, the story of what it took to become a knight and use that to apply to how to raise a young man to be a man. Not bad. But if you go and take a look at what knights were trained to do, which was go to war, um, he brings out the fact that these guys get itchy. Mm-hmm. Right? If they're just sitting around, they're like, they're getting, and they're going to go kill some stuff. They're going to go pillage. They're going to go take over something because that's what they were trained to do. And so you see several instances here where these knights got itchy and started to pillage here, started to take over there, started to attack over here. And it led to bad stuff. It led, uh, so that was the first. And then the second was, uh, I found it really fascinating how when someone won, like, okay, oh, we stormed the city and we now took it over, that there was a negotiation for peace and and now you have to pay tribute. And so here's the tribute that you're going to have to pay, but we're going to let you, we're not going to just stay here and rule. We're going to back away now and we'll just take a certain amount of treasure with us. I don't think that that's something that many modern, many contemporary people think of when they think of, oh, when you're in war, you take over an area and then you stay put, and then you're going to be able to call that your own territory. I don't know. Is that too strongly stated, Father Nagel? Well, I I saw that same dynamic, though, that I would have even a, a deeper point, though, talking about that same notion of um, the rules of warfare. So there were some rules that they're always kind of shaky in war, but I thought the interesting, one of the, the great attacks upon the crusaders is they slaughtered the people in Jerusalem when they took over and they, they, they stormed and, and conquered it in 1099. And he makes a good point saying that wasn't, that was the rule. Uh, you're, yeah, page you're, 158. You're, to the victor go the spoils. Right. If, right. If you negotiate before the assault and they don't have to waste their men and time and you know endanger themselves to get the town, yeah, you can get negotiated. Maybe they'll let you march out with your lives and maybe anything you can carry. They get the city, but you survive. As opposed to, but if you don't, okay, we're giving you a chance to surrender, but okay, now you're not. So if we win, it's, you, you've lost every right to your life and all your possessions. So we just take what we take. And that's not simply a Christian thing. It's, it's a Muslim thing. It's a Christian thing. It's everybody. That was just the culture. Um, and so when Saladin took uh, Jerusalem in, what was it, 1088 or something, he, there was a negotiation going on. And so he did let most of the people go, but he didn't storm the city either. So again, it's you have to recognize the, the context of what's going on. Was it bloody taking over? The, yeah, was it a slaughter of innocents? Certainly it was. Would we want that to happen? No. But in the time, late 11th century, that's the way it was played. So again, not something to congratulate ourselves about, but not it's not uniquely savage. It was just part of what Muslims and Christians did. All right, we're up against another break. When we come back, we'll continue in our last segment with more on God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades by Rodney Stark. Back in a minute. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran, and we're talking about the book God's Battalions, The Case for the Crusades by Rodney Stark. This is part one, and I'm glad we've had a thorough examination of each of these six chapters or seven chapters that we're covering here. No, six. The first six chapters, which is getting us through the first crusade. Uh, We only have four minutes left, fathers, Mm -hmm. in this final section. So I want to say this. uh, What was the biggest surprise? Or I'll I'll give you a chance. Biggest surprise or uh, another insight that you gained in reading this book that um, you want to bring out in the time that remains? Biggest surprise and some other maybe insight that remains. For me, a big uh, takeaway, uh, this will probably come more in our next uh, episode, but one of the uh, uh, 
kind of uh, his, you know, historians' uh, attacks and critic cr critiques of the Crusades was that, well, you see, Christians slaughtering Christian. The whole point was to go just sack Constantinople, and um, I knew it wasn't as simple as that. But this book helped me to see the 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 detail of that or the the larger context, and and it was just surprising to me. On the one hand, you know, the Crusaders get to the Bosporus Strait. That's where Constantinople is. They have to. That's where they have to cross. Otherwise, they need a fleet of boats, and it just makes everything more cumbersome and difficult. And how many times the Crusaders were guaranteed safe passage across and aid and supply from the Byzantines, and how frequently the Emperor of Constantine, uh, Constantinople reneged. And um, so I guess I was surprised on one hand, like, those, those foolish Europeans, how many times are they going to be let down before you figure it out? Well, they found out, and then that's that was a huge reason why. So Stark does a good job, I think, of there's tensions in three, on three fronts. It's not just Christians versus Muslims. It's Latin Christians versus Eastern Christians because of the constant betrayal of the emperor of, uh, uh, of the Byzantines. And then among the Muslims, you know, we get toward the end and the Egyptian Muslims were very happy to see the Turk Muslims destroyed. And so they let the Crusaders go out. So there's tensions in there. So all those kind of factors, um, those, again, the details uh, enriching the larger context to portray the to portray this whole scene in, in, um, in greater detail, uh, that was a that was a good insight for me to help me further understand what what the, what all is going on here. Father Nagel, I'll just keep it short because I probably need to. But it's interesting, Father Lewis. That's exactly my point as well. What I learned a lot about the Byzantine interaction, the Byzantine army, and its weaknesses, and this is something that's very much part of the, the mythology. I use that in neutral term of the relationship between. Constantinople and Rome in terms of Christians. And I think it, there's there's context there too, that um, it's not all one-sided. It's true that the Latins did take over the, the, the conquered Constantinople, did hurt the Byzantine Empire. But there's another side to that too, in which they kind of got what they were asking for in some ways. So I, I'm going to summarize all of that point with uh, this Holy Roman Emperor Alexius was a knucklehead. I cannot believe. Well, it, here's the point. Leaders matter. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this guy had such an impact because of how he led and how he didn't lead. But the chapter that I enjoyed the most, which is so interesting, like in, just in terms of insight, was on Western ignorance versus Eastern culture. Mm. And he tackles the uh, mythical dark ages. And he mm. begins to talk about the technology that developed there. Fascinating, fascinating in terms of weaponry and warfare and agriculture and talks about the use of horses versus um, versus oxen for plowing fields. Uh, uh, I was fascinated by the whole Greek fire and like who yeah. invented that and how did we not how are we not able to figure that out again? And and then I can't believe the Muslims kept attacking <laughs> Constantinople <laughs> when the Greek fire kept burning up their ships. So so much in there in that um, in that uh, Eastern uh, ignorant Eastern culture versus Western ignorance in the Dark Ages. And uh, even then, just like an exploration of where um, where culture was in the West, uh, in the East, how it was really, it wasn't even uh, Muslims exactly. that were growing things, but it was the Christians that were already there that were overtaken, or Persians and, and others that were, were not Islam at all. Uh, fascinating. That was like, I think that was my most interesting for me chapter of all. So, all right, we have finished the program, so we're going to have to continue on next week because there's so much more to say. Uh, we'll cover part two of God's Battalions. Thanks so much for listening. God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sun Insight.